I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Father, your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And we do pray, Lord, that it may be true for us today. We pray, Lord, that if we have been walking in the shadows or the darkness, we pray that your word and your spirit may do its work to convict us and to draw us back to Christ. So do speak to us through the Bible, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. The key verse here must be verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's great concern for the Corinthian church, and we'll pick it up as we work our way through this letter, is that they understand that the power of the gospel is not seen in people, it's not seen in philosophy or intellectual arguments, no, it's seen in the cross of Christ. Remember from last week that uh, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, that's in Greece, and uh, had, Corinth had been destroyed by by the Romans in uh, 146 B.C. Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth in 44 B.C. And then uh, Paul planted a church in Corinth in 50 A.D. Corinth was a prosperous economic hub center. Uh, It was a commercial port. It was a a kind of an east-west, north-south trade route. So at its height, it probably had about a million people living in Corinth. It was the political capital for Greece and Macedonia, and apart from Rome, it was one of the key cities in the Roman Empire. And we saw last week in Acts chapter 18, Paul planting the church in Corinth. So it's interesting, when you want to know, when you read Corinthians and say, where did this church come from? Then you read Acts. Acts is church history 101. And Acts tells you how this church started. And when you read Acts and you read about the planting of the church in Corinth and you ask yourself, where did the church go to then? Well, then you read 1 Corinthians. So the two balance each other. Acts is church history 101. And then we find out what happened in the churches that were planted in the book of Acts. So Paul planted this church around about 50 AD. And now five years later, 
He spent 18 months there and then continued planting churches elsewhere. Now, five years later, around about 55 AD, Paul has heard, notice verse 11, he's heard from Chloe's people that there are problems in the church. There's quarreling among you. In fact, they had written him a letter, and uh, Paul was responding not only to the problems, the quarreling in the church, but he was responding to some of the issues that they talked about and wrote about in their letter, and he responds in these two letters, 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. Now, I've noticed over the years that preachers sort of dip in and out of Corinthians. They're sort of key passages or purple passages which everyone likes. So everyone likes to look at 1 Corinthians 12, which talks about the church as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, you often hear that read at weddings. 1 Corinthians 14, that talks about spiritual gifts. And uh, it seems that Corinthians is a book that you kind of dip in and dip out, but I don't think we can do that. I think we've got to look at the details. Perhaps, uh, perhaps people are a bit like me when, when uh, someone gives me a box of chocolates. You know those chocolates where you open the box and it's got a picture of, of all the different kinds of chocolates, yes? And uh, then I choose all the ones I like, and then I give the box to Jean and the girls. Um, <laughs> Well, you can't do that with Corinthians. We've actually got to work through the details to get to the heart of what Paul is teaching us here. So we can't just pick and choose. Well, like any good sermon, there are three points. Uh, Quarrels in Corinth, divisions in Corinth, and power in Corinth. So let's dig into those three points, and I really do hope that you have your Bibles open in front of you. Quarrels in Corinth, chapter Chapter 1 and verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So Paul is responding to the questions that they raised in their letter when he wrote to them. But actually, he only gets to their question in chapter 7, verse 1. So just just have a look at chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We'll have to come back to that one. But he only picks up their question in chapter 7. It's a little bit like politicians. Haven't you noticed that when politicians are asked a question, they don't answer the question. They kind of travel all around the world, and if you really are lucky, they'll get to your question. Well, in a sense, Paul is saying, before we get to your question, there are some more important things you need to understand. Because if you don't understand these foundational things, these fundamental issues then in a sense, your questions are almost out of place. So Paul is dealing here with fundamental issues, foundational issues, even before he can get to their questions. So verse 11, he says, It's been reported that there's quarreling among the the believers in Corinth. So there's quarreling inside the church. Verse 10, Paul appeals to them to agree with one another, which obviously means that there are disagreements. There are divisions. Now, now at first, 
you're a little bit shocked. We're looking at 55 AD. It's only been 25 years since the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. Corinth was one of the young, gifted, vibrant churches, probably the most gifted church uh, that Paul had planted. And yet, even just after five years, there's this huge bickering and quarreling and disagreements. And yet we all know bickering and quarreling is very common, isn't it? It's almost as common as the common cold. Think about it. There will be a little bit of bickering between Japan and South Africa a little bit later on. Uh, Brexit. I mean, they can't stop bickering, can they? I mean, even yesterday they had to delay their decision. Uh, I think the DA this weekend is bickering. Perhaps you were bickering when you drove here in your motor car. You don't want to tell anybody, but you were. And last night when you were having supper, the kids were bickering. I mean, kids are very good at bickering. Um, wonder who they learned it from. But anyway, um, you know how they can bicker and then you say a word and then they stop for about 90 seconds and then you're back to bickering again. And Paul is saying, have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. He's saying you're actually just like children. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving only in a human way? For, one, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now let's start off by asking the question, what is Paul not talking about? Paul is not talking about having harmonious relationships in the church. He's not talking about that. He's not saying you must be more patient with each other, you must be more forgiving. He's not saying that. Of course you need to do that, but that's not what this passage is about. He's not saying just grow up, stop being like children. He's not saying here's some company policy. Okay, here are the, here are the lines of reporting, here are the rules of engagement. There are certain things which is hate speech and certain things which is not hate speech. He's not giving us here a handbook of procedure. No, the symptom that is shown in this church is quarreling and divisions. But it's not the real disease. The real disease, verse 10, is that they lack the same mind. They lack the same judgment. So Paul says there, verse 10, I ask you, I appeal to you to agree in the truth. He's not saying let's all just behave, let's just agree to disagree, Let's grow up. No, he's saying we need to agree in the truth. We are to be united in the same mind. So later on in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about different gifts. The different members of the church have different gifts. We have different gifts, different personalities, different opinions, different perspectives. It's sometimes be painful, but it actually enriches the community. But what he's saying is Though you may have different gifts and different perspectives, we need to be united theologically. We need to be united on the gospel. We need to be on the same page when it comes to Christ. Now, over the last 50, 60 years, and I've lived 50, 60 years, there have been many doctrines of Christ going around. There's been a kind of a 
socialist Christ with an AK-47 over his shoulder. There's been a communist Christ. Uh, there's been a political Jesus who's come to rescue you from political freedom. Um, I think we probably now have a capitalist Christ that he's there to free you from economic poverty. He's here to give you a good self-image. He's here to save you from sickness or illness. Now, my dear friends, none of those Christs are the Christ of the Bible. No wonder there's so much bickering and quarreling within the larger Christian church because there's no clear understanding of who Christ is. The symptom is division and quarreling. The real problem, says Paul, is that you are not of the same mind concerning Christ, concerning the gospel. You're all confused. You don't agree on the truth. So chapter 1, verse 22, which Royden will look at next week, so I'm stealing his thunder. Tough luck, Royden. Ike was first. Uh, <laughs> Paul says here, verse 22, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul is saying, it's not the, it's not the Christ of signs and wonders. It's not a prosperity Christ, this. It's not an academic, intellectual Christ. No, it's Christ crucified. It's the cross of Christ. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's a sign of weakness, isn't it? Someone dying on a cross is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of humility. In fact, it's almost a pathetic picture. And yet Paul is saying that's the key to the universe. That's the key to salvation. The cross of Christ. That is the power of God. That's the wisdom of God. It's not seen in your signs and wonders. It's not seen in your great philosophical arguments. No, it's seen in the cross. There's the power of God. There's the wisdom of God. I wonder how often you've heard that on Christian TV. I would guess not very often. I think even here in South Africa, we have a lot of confusion about Jesus. Most people call themselves Christians. And I think pretty much everyone is keen on Jesus the Savior. I mean, who wouldn't want a Savior? To save you from your sin, from your guilt, from your history from your shame, from, from judgment, from hell. I mean, everybody would, would want that kind of savior, but almost no one wants Jesus as Lord, as King, as the crucified, risen King who calls on us to submit to him. You see, your doctrine of Christ, your doctrine of the gospel, is what we need to have the same mind about. We've just sung some wonderful songs, and um, we have different singers, we have different musicians. Uh, Bronwyn is leading, she's the conductor. We don't expect every musician, every singer, to sing the same note as everyone else. We don't expect that. We need the harmony. But they do need to sing from the same hymn sheet, don't they? They do need to follow the one conductor. It's like, it's like, it's like rugby. They're different positions. Each one has its own purpose. 
Each one has its own duty. But there's only one game plan. There's only one captain. That's what Paul is saying. You can't have these different views of Jesus in Corinth. No, there's one Jesus, and he's the crucified Jesus. He's the Jesus who died on the cross. Now, my dear friends, if we as a church want to be united for the next 25 years, that needs to be our foundation. That's why Sunday mornings are so important. And during the week when we meet in life groups, that we have the same foundation, we have the same mind, we have the same theology, we have the same gospel. It's only that that will keep us united. We are different in all kinds of different ways. Our interests, our backgrounds, our culture, our language, our race. But what unites us? It's this one gospel, this one crucified Christ who has come to save us and liberate us and give us new life. And if we don't have that as our foundation as a church, we will not last 25 years. We will divide and separate. That's why five-minute sermons are not actually good enough. It's not going to last the distance because you won't have a proper foundation. All right, let's have a look. There are the quarrels in Corinth. Let's have a look at the divisions in Corinth, verse 12 and 13. Chapter 1, verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, it's quite obvious, you see, when you take your eyes off Jesus, invariably you get cliques in the church. That's what happens. And they start rallying around one or other personality. So let me tell you that a personality-driven church, in the end, will end in tears. Because that's what happens when you take your eyes off Jesus. I think it's a great tragedy in our Christian culture how, how the focus of of many churches and they have billboards with the apostle and the prophet and the, the bishop and whatever uh, there and it's almost as if that's the focal point. Well, surely that's not right. Surely that's personality driven. No, it should be Christ driven. So I think Sunday mornings, if you have a look at verse 12, were quite tense at Corinth. It wasn't a very happy time Sunday morning, especially not after church. There would be a certain group, and they would meet on that patio over there. And they wouldn't mix with the other group that meets right behind us over there. And they certainly wouldn't mix with the folk under the trees. They were cliques, and they were personality-driven. And it was, quite, it was quite a tense thing. Notice he mentions four groups here that clustered around a leader. There's no evidence that the leaders were divided. They were not divided. It's their followers who drew in these groups and these cliques and these clusters with that broad division. There's, there's a group that said, I follow Paul. Now, that, that would be quite understandable. Paul planted the church. Paul founded the church, Acts 18. Read it up. And uh, so there were many in the church who were there in 50 AD, and they heard Paul, and they were converted under his ministry, and his memory kind of lived on. So when, so when new ministers came, they would compare them with Paul. You know, Paul didn't do it this way. 
I mean, Paul wouldn't have allowed that. Uh, Paul was a much better leader or teacher. I mean, that's a perennial problem with new ministers. Now, you need to bear that in mind when I retire or die, whichever comes first, and uh, who knows, that, um, that there will be other ministers. This is not Martin's church, thankfully. Uh, it's not Martin's church. This is God's church. Ministers come and go. We all come and go. No, this belongs to Christ. So we need to be very careful that we don't tie a church to any personality or any, any individual. Secondly, there were some who said, I follow Apollos. Now we know from Acts 18, Acts 19, that Apollos was an African. Apollos was an Egyptian Jew that came from Alexandria. That is right in the north of Egypt. And uh, Alexandria uh, was, uh, was, a, was a big town, and it had probably the most respected university in the Mediterranean. And uh, Apollos, perhaps, perhaps he studied there, but certainly he was a learned man. He spoke with great eloquence. He was very able in public debate. So here we have a man, Apollos. He has a great intellect. He has great academic ability. He's a great debater, great orator. He and Paul were very close. And through no fault of his own, he attracted this personal following. Perhaps it was the kind of intellectual elite of the church, those who only had masters or PhDs, those who only went to this kind of university. And they started looking down their nose at other people. And then there was a third group, I follow Cephas. That is the, the, the Aramaic name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. Peter was the, 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 one of the twelve. Peter was the church leader in Jerusalem. Possibly there were people in the church in Corinth, and they had family members in the church in Jerusalem. And they kept saying to, to Apollos or one of the leaders, you know, Peter doesn't do it this way. And then there was a group, quite strangely, have a look at that. I mean, it's extraordinary. I follow Christ. It seems very strange at first, but you do sometimes get these, these kind of super spiritual people who say, you know, we don't, we don't belong to any denomination. We don't belong to any theological grouping. Uh, God speaks to us directly, and we are forming, normally what happens, they form their own little church because we don't believe in denominations and lo and behold, they've just started another denomination. So it's normally a kind of a spiritual snobbery. We don't need other leaders. We don't need other teachers. We don't need to learn from church history. No, 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 we have Jesus. Um, Paul makes it very clear that we need to be very, very careful not to idolize a teacher or a preacher. So God may well have given a particular person great gifts of preaching or eloquence like Apollos. He had great eloquence. But at, but at the end of the day, my dear friends, all of us, including the preachers, have feet of clay. Isn't that right? All of us, including your leaders and teachers, are only sinners saved by grace. Paul makes that very clear. He's so concerned about that. Chapter 3.5, chapter 3, chapter 3.5. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. <laughs> there we go, chapter 3.5. Hey, guys. Chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, what then is Apollos? So, so, so Paul is hugely sensitive that there are these cliques, that there are these personality-driven groups in a church or in churches. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I mean, that's quite clear, isn't it? In fact, he's purposely rude about Apollos. He's purposely rude about himself. I planted, Apollos watered, but we are nothing. It's God who gives the growth. But dear friends, I can't convert anybody. I can't convert myself. God has to do that. No preacher or teacher has that kind of power. No, it's God who gives the growth. He uses us. We are his instruments. He has given us different gifts, all of us. He's given us different gifts. We are to use his gifts. Some plant, some water, some, some fertilize, some, some um, help in the growth. But I, ultimately, it's God. Who gives the growth? Imagine being in, being in the Cape. The Cape's the only place in our country that's had rain. And you're in the vineyards there with a farmer and these beautiful vineyards with these beautiful grapes. And the farmer says, you know, I made that grow. But of course that's absurd, isn't it? Yes, he watered, he planted, he fertilized. But he didn't make that grow. We all know that. God made it grow. So Paul is warning against taking a focus off Christ and Christ crucified and misplacing it on a human leader. Jesus felt strongly about that. Have a look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 verse 8. Jesus felt very strongly about this principle. And we need to hear it in our day and age where it seems to me that verse 8 and 9 are totally ignored. Matthew 23, verse 8. Jesus is call, talking to Christian leaders, to his disciples. He says, ministers like me, he says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, of course, the church has teachers and instructors and fathers in the faith, but not with a capital F, not with a capital T, not with a capital I. How tragic it is that we have in so many churches the person who leads is called father. Well, I mean, hasn't Jesus said something about that? I heard on Friday, just Friday, of a mega church in North Pretoria. There's a new minister there. He's the son of the previous pastor, which worries you straight away. And um, he will only allow people to call him prophet or sir. I mean, hasn't he read verse 8 or 9? You see, we need to be careful of this false exaltation, this false uh, uh, pride 
not just because it's false pride, but because it takes away from the glory of Christ and the cross of Christ and the focus is Christ. It's interesting that um, during the week we have the school here, we have about 650 learners, and I normally know which kids from the school come to the church. The kids who don't come to the church and go elsewhere call me Mr. Morrison. But the kids who come to the church call me Martin. And I actually like Martin. I like my name. You see, it's, it's a dangerous sign when leaders in churches are taking titles and status for themselves because ultimately it takes away from Christ and Christ crucified. Lastly, let's have a look at the power in Corinth. We've looked at quarrels in Corinth, divisions in Corinth. Let's have a look in at power in Corinth, verse 14. Back to chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. You with me there? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, Paul is not giving us here a theology of baptism. And he's not negating or minimizing baptism. But it does seem that here in Corinth, that who baptized who is sort of part of their divisions, part of their quarrels. Or perhaps baptism has taken on this exaggerated importance in the church. Baptism or the Lord's table, which we will share in in just a moment, they actually don't save you. They are secondary. They are external signs of an inward work of God. What is primary is the preaching of the gospel of Christ. These are purely signs. These are secondary. So Paul is very sensitive that, that he doesn't want anyone to think that they are more important in Corinth because he baptized them. You know how people say, I was baptized by Paul. Or perhaps they say, I was baptized by this bishop. Or I was baptized by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Or perhaps they say, I was baptized with water from the Jordan. It's quite muddy, actually. Or perhaps they say, I went to Israel and I was baptized in the Jordan. That, you get the idea. There's something special about me. Because of who baptized who, or what water you used, or where it happened. And Paul is saying, don't think that because I baptized you or because I prayed for you that, uh, that you are any closer to God or that you're saved. In fact, Paul tells us there, verse 17, his job is not to baptize. That is secondary. No, his job is to preach the gospel, not to preach his own message. So, so a preacher is not a man with a message. No, a preacher is a man with a voice. The message has been given. It's not for me to make up the message. It's not for me to make up my own ideas. No, all I need is a voice and long lungs. Uh, so, so when I prepare, I'm not making up my own ideas, trying to be creative. Uh, no, all I need to have is a voice. You know, I hate listening to myself on the website. In fact, I never listen to myself on the website. Have, have you ever listened to yourself speak? 
I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? Uh, I have no idea why you people come back week after week. Um, and it's not for me to make up. It's not for Paul to make up. No, it's Christ, the crucified Christ. So it's a little bit, let's say, you, let's say you're having breakfast, you have a steward, a waiter who brings you, comes to you and says, what do you want for breakfast? And you say, can I please have some eggs and bacon? And then he comes back and he brings eggs and bacon and, uh, and baked beans and pork sausage. And you say, but I asked for eggs and bacon. It's not the steward's job, it's not the waiter's job to, to decide what you eat. It's not my job to decide what you eat. No, 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 it's my job, it's Paul's job to preach the gospel of Christ and Christ crucified. I can't make up my own Christ. Notice he says, last point, we need to end as we come to the Lord's table. Paul says he came to preach the gospel, notice verse 17, not with words of eloquent wisdom. So eloquence isn't the problematic word. The problematic word there is wisdom. It's the Greek word Sophia. You see, there's nothing wrong with eloquence. God gifts different people, like he gifted Apollos with eloquence. No, the problem word is wisdom. So if you lived in Corinth in 55 AD and wanted to take your wife out, you wouldn't take her to the movies. You would take her to hear two great Greek orators debating wisdom, philosophy. And you would take special note of their rhetorical skills, of their intellectual arguments, of their philosophical thoughts. Well, Paul says, if you think that this kind of wisdom is going to get you to God, well, you're totally out of the ballpark. This gospel is not another philosophy. It's not as if this is the best philosophy that has finally arrived. This is the best wisdom that has finally come to our shores. No, he says this is something totally different. Our wisdom is not found in intellectual arguments or philosophy. No, it's found in Christ crucified. Look so weak. Look so foolish. And yet there we see the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's, it's, it's not as if this is the best philosophy in the world that we finally, we finally worked it out. No, salvation is not found in a formula or philosophy. It's found in a person who was crucified in our place. So Paul says the power of God, the wisdom of God, is not seen in signs and wonders. It's not seen in intellectual proofs. No, it's seen in the cross of Christ, the atonement of Christ. Precisely what we're remembering this morning, that Jesus died in my place. How extraordinary that is. That he took the judgment and the very hell that I deserve on himself so that I could be rescued. Let's pray together. Let's spend a few moments in quiet, and can I ask the stewards to come forward, and you tell God where you are.
Father, will you forgive us when we have run after material things, physical things, intellectual things, to satisfy the yearning of our hearts to know God. Forgive us, Father, when we have when we have put aside the cross of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ and moved on to other things. Lord, we pray that we may never, never graduate from the foot of the cross. And Lord, we come again this, this morning conscious that we are only sinners saved by grace, nothing more and nothing less. Conscious that we need your cleansing, your washing, as we remember the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that he gave to rescue us. Father, help us to never become so important and so educated that we think these things are trivial or below our dignity. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.